the reason why opportunity is not an inexhaustible resource is because at the exact moment you had that epiphany, somebody else did too. And at the same time, opportunities are the result of a lot of factors that convene at one moment, they conspire on your behalf, and then they retrace, they disappear. Welcome, everybody, to The Chris Harder Show, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success, knowing that when good people like you make good money, they can then do great things. My name is Chris Harder, and several times per week, I will bring you epic guests, solo episodes, and every single tool, trick, and skill set you need to grow your business, grow your money mindset, and to grow your wealth to levels that you have never reached before. I've ended up in a unique place in life where I've got the experience, the connections, and all of the secrets that it takes to be successful. And I'm lifting the curtain to reveal it all to you in an effort to help put you in a position of abundance so great that you can then be as generous as possible. So let's lock arms and let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Chris Harder Show, where we absolutely believe that both prosperity and generosity can and must coexist. I can't wait for you to sit down and listen to today's interview with Matt Higgins. We quickly went from not knowing each other to definitely becoming friends. And I can't wait to collaborate and do things in the future with this incredible human being. And when I say incredible, I think he has the most prolific career of anyone that I have ever, ever had on the show. I mean, he's been the press secretary for the mayor of New York when he was in his 20s. He has run both the Miami Dolphins and the New York Jets. He runs a huge venture fund investing in startups and mid-sized companies. He has businesses with Gary Vee. I mean, he has literally done it all. And most notably, most recently, he is the author of the best-selling book, Burn the Boats, which is his story of how the odds were stacked against him growing up in poverty in New York and having a mom who fell ill and he had to find a way to take care of her and still have the career that he knew he was destined for. So it's really a story as as he tells it on this podcast and as he tells it in the book. It's a story of persevering and overcoming absolutely anything that you might think you're facing. If you think you're facing some challenges right now, if you think that the odds are stacked against you, if you think that you don't stand a chance, I want you to first listen to this episode and then I immediately want you to go download the book. And by the way, spoiler alert, if you get to the end of this episode, We're doing a book giveaway where I will personally buy and send some of you a book. So listen to the end to learn how to get that free book giveaway. But I'm telling you, my wife and I have been listening to this book on our walks. It motivates the daylights out of us. It's incredibly written. He's an incredible storyteller and probably one of the most accomplished individuals we have ever, ever had on this show and might ever have on this show. Also, if you want to be exposed to more high-performing entrepreneurs, You need a tribe, a circle of influence to help collaborate with. Well, we've got just a few seats left in our last roundtable of 2023. It's called the 2024 Planning Edition because that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be planning your 2024 coming up, everything from what your goals are, both from a business perspective and personally, building a set of tracks to get there, anticipating anything that might get in the way and creating a plan to mitigate those things and giving you a brand new circle of influence, a brand new group of entrepreneurs that you did not know before in order to collaborate with going into 2024. It's the absolute secret sauce. You got to have a plan. You got to have a plan that mitigates anything that might pop up and throw you off the plan. And then you got to have a circle of influence of talented people to collaborate with that are going to hold you to that plan. And that's exactly what our 48 hours of roundtable is in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's November 6th and 7th. I would rush over to chrisharder.me forward slash roundtable. I'm serious. Hit pause real quick before you start this thing. Hit pause and go over to chrisharder.me forward slash roundtable. And if you can check out, that means there's a seat left. If not, that means it's totally sold out. So seriously, hit pause real quick. You wouldn't believe how many thousands and thousands and thousands of people listen to each one of these episodes. So time is of the essence as this one comes out. Hit pause, go to chrisharder.me forward slash roundtable, grab your seat if there's any left, and then come back to this episode because we're about to inspire you and blow your mind with the incredible Matt Higgins. All right, Matt, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. 
It's so funny because here we are talking about your one ball, and I'll let you get into that story later, and everything else before this. And then we pretend we're all formal, like, oh, Matt, welcome to the show. We went right into it, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So what's funny is I actually wanted to start the show with this. You know, you are probably one of the most eclectic entrepreneurs I've ever had on the show. And what I mean by that is the number of accomplishments in different fields, you know, from press secretary for, you know, the mayor of New York to working for the Jets and the Dolphins to the fund that you have and everything else. It's, it's just wild. But in that entire experience, I wanted to ask, are you an actual Jets fan? I know you were an executive for the Jets, but are you an actual Jets fan? The truth is I was only a moderate sports fan growing up. I was too, and I mean this, I was too busy with real world shit, real world mm-hmm. shit, like selling flowers and hustling. Yep. So I was a Jets and a Mets fan. But I have pledged my allegiance to the Miami Dolphins. Some listening to this might think I'm a traitor, but I, you know, help run the team and I became partners with the owner and spent years and years and years in Miami. So I am till the end now a Dolphins fan. That is awesome. Well, the reason I ask is I'm looking at Lambeau Field right now. So my wife and I actually live in Scottsdale, but we come to Wisconsin for the summers. We have a lake house here. Oh, and wow. across the lake, across the bay here is Lambeau Field. And it's going to be a very empty Lambeau Field without Aaron Rodgers this year, who went to your former company there, the Jets. And I was at the Jets with uh, Rex Ryan and Mike Tannenbaum when we went through, uh, actually, no, that was with Mangini, rather. I'm getting my dates wrong. We went through Brett Favre. Oh, was, yeah. Not saying it's going to end, anyway, but I have some experience about getting Hall of Fame quarterbacks in the last chapter. But, I uh, mean, it's it's history repeating itself. It's It's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, I wish them all the best, kind of. Not really. I think that's just me saying that. <laughs> I love it. Gary right, Vaynerchuk is my bar. Fun to see Gary. So, so passionate. I'm like, hey, do you like own a piece of the team? Right. You know, we would always have these conversations with the Dolphins. But uh, he's, that's actually how I found you. You bring up Gary. I told you offline, I was listening to a podcast, his Gary's podcast, and you were on it. I said, I have to have this guy on the show. Like, I fell in love with you and your book and everything about it. And the next day, your publicist popped into my podcast producers, uh, you know, messages there and said, Hey, you know, could we have Matt on the show? So this was synchronistic and, and, and meant to be. Amazing. Where I'd love to really take this is taking you back to your freshman year. And maybe it was one of your two freshman years in high school. Cause you kind of went through it twice. And I would love for you to share the story where a teacher was trying to take a shot at you saying, Hey, I'll see you at McDonald's as you're walking out the door, you know, implying that you're not going to amount to anything other than working at McDonald's. And your response to that teacher was epic. Do you mind sharing that response and kind of sharing that story? Yeah. Uh, Let me show a little bit of context for those who don't know the story. So I grew up in Queens, uh, abject poverty. Those words don't have a lot of meaning, right? Because people throw them around. But so you have to contextualize the degree of your poverty. I remember one time I hung out with uh, with 50 Cent and we were playing the who's poorer than who, you know, game. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but I took my GD at Springfield Gardens. He's like, yeah, but I was shot. I was like, all right, you win. <laughs> but nonetheless, I won't play the who's poorer than who game, but I will tell you a little bit of the uh, details. And we, we we lived in total abject poverty, squalor, dysfunction. I used to say it was a roach motel. <laughs> really, really was. Check out anytime you want, but you can never leave. And we used to get boxes of government cheese from the USDA, literally said courtesy of the USDA. So like real poverty, real dysfunction. And take a bus to a actually black church and, and flushing. And they were always so kind to us. And my mother always felt embarrassed. So we would take a bus to go to the food pantry and bring the boxes back. So I'm just sharing this to shape it because there is this attempt. I almost think it's cruel. Everyone now needs to have like a origin vulnerability story, you know? So I'm just disclaiming that from those that are manufactured, we were really poor <laughs> and it's not a talking point. And I, my childhood was full of my mother getting divorced when I was nine trying to make something out of herself. She didn't even have any education whatsoever. She basically dropped out of high school to escape her father and entered into a loveless marriage. So as a kid, I watched her get divorced, but also try to reclaim her dignity by going to college with her GD. At the same time, she had all these health problems. My mother was morbidly obese, ended up succumbing to obesity. And so as a little kid, you're like, you're always waiting for the cavalry to come. And my mother dealt with depression, all these other issues. And so as a little boy, it was like, oh, could somebody step in and help us? And maybe the government will. Maybe a man will come and date her. And then being constantly defeated by the cavalry never coming while dealing with the pressure as a little kid of trying to cover it all up. I mean, it wasn't cool when I was growing up to be poor or a dropout. You know, nowadays, like you get well shamed. Back then you get, you know, rocks thrown at you for being poor and dirty. And so that was my life. 
And I'm completely more desperate and frustrated to the point that I was becoming a little bit self-destructive and just wanting, you know, fantasizing about something bad happening so that I could get a break from being in charge of taking care of my, my mom. And at a moment of sheer desperation, I had an epiphany on my back, and I'll get into how this feeds into Burn the Boats, but of saying, wait a second, if I get a job, if I become a college student, I can get a job making 2x what I'm making right now. I was making 375 at McDonald's, five bucks at a deli, working overnight. But as a college student, you can get a college student paying job, right? Which that's how all this started. And I remember thinking like, why wouldn't I do that? So on the one hand, I'm trying to do high school, which is totally pointless and meaningless. I'm working overnight at a deli, carrying a butterfly knife so I don't get jumped on the way home. And then I'm supposed to show up and miss English class, like and do an essay on 17th century English literature. Like who gives a shit? Also, algebra seemed totally pointless. Like I was like, but if I dropped out of high school, took a GD, I could do what my mother did. And I could do it, but I'd do it on purpose. And back then... You could technically convert a GED score into a grade point average and go to any college in America, like even Harvard. Now that might've changed, but so I started exploring this hack and I became manic about like, I have an idea. And I remember I I told my guidance counselor about it, you know, everyone like, so here's my plan. And I was a kid who was well-spoken. People couldn't tell what I was dealing with. And the advice was like, you're out of your mind. You're going to ruin your life. You're going to be branded a loser. And I don't, you know, this isn't one of these situations like everyone was against me. That was a logical response, right? But nonetheless, this is where I came up with this idea of burn the boats. This is a degree of hindsight bias. Like you're reconstructing your things that are intuitive, right? And then you're packaging it. So obviously I didn't say I'm going to burn the boats like Cortez, (laughs) you know, but nonetheless, we'll get to that. But I decided I'm going to drop out. And when everybody was rejecting it, ironically, except for my mother, which I just wrote an article about. Everybody was rejecting it. I decided I need to sabotage myself so much so people stop investing in their version of how things should be done and submit and surrender to my bad version. And so I decided I would fail every single class, got left back two years in a row. I talk about this, but it is true. The only class I passed was typing. And to this day, I'll kick anyone's ass in a typing test. But I went ahead and I came up with this plan. So for me to get through it, I needed to burn the boats and be a write-off, which I was. And on the last day of high school, and now I'm like, oh, man, I actually have to do this. And remember, staring at a report card when you have a 45 GPA and you're in a homeroom class with a bunch of kids with beepers making very different life choices than you, like, it's you start to really test your plan a bit. Like, ah, so on the last day, you have to return your books to every class. I call it the academic walk of shame. And I walked into Mr. Rosenthal's classroom, my science teacher, still remember, weirdly balding, like everything about his face. And he's like, without missing a beat, not looking away, what's this? I said, this is my textbook, you know, my unopened textbook, ha ha ha. It's my last day of school. And I have to return this to you. I need you to sign this form. Why I gave a shit about returning my textbooks, I have no idea. That's but, funny. Right, like, so, but I give him my textbook <clears throat> without missing a beat. True story. This is not manufactured, even though it's funny and entertaining. He's like, Higgins, what a waste. He's like, I'll see you at McDonald's. Now you have all these kids like, oh, oh, you know, like I'm Irish, already insecure, already depressed. I really almost felt like I'd pass out, like so humiliating. And I walk out the door, I go grab the doorknob. I'm about to walk out and something's like, this cannot be the last word. And I turn around like, you know, Mr. Rosendahl, if you see me at McDonald's, it's because I own it. (laughs) <laughs> and all the kids are like, oh, snap, you're going to take that? And then I remember like, remember walking out. Now, this is midday. Kick the metal door open of Cardoza High School. Sit down, pack my butts. You know what I mean? Oh. Open a Marlboro, which still makes me nostalgic. I don't smoke. <laughs> and I smoked a cigarette. And I was like, you know, he's probably right. Statistically. This is probably how this is going to play out. I cannot believe I just dropped out of high school. I cannot believe. And then the way the hack back then for them to get this distressed, discarded kid was to send me the land of misfit toys, which was a high school dropout program. Technically, I was not a dropout. I transferred to it. I show up at that program. Stuff got real, real fast. I was like, oh, you were like the real drug dealers or the real, like, real people with the prison tattoos. And I was like, all right, I have to get out of this cohort kind of quickly. And I decided I'd take my GED on standby. A week later, I'd show up at the school, Springfield Gardens High School, which is not far from from 50 Cent, actually. Took it on standby. Within the course of two to three weeks, I took my GED, my SAT for good measure. And a year later, I I see Mr. Rosenthal again, this time at my high school prom. Decided to go anyway with a pretty girl. And I told him I was now on the debate team. I had a 3.5 GPA at college. 
two jobs. And it was one of those like goodwill hunting, how do you like them apples moments? Yeah. But, but it's interesting, and I'll get to I'll stop talking, is the look that had gone from one Mr. Rosenthal with slight disdain, but just being funny, and to Mrs. Vega, who was my homeroom teacher, who was always sensitive. And the look in there, all their faces had gone from a degree of disdain or pity to now begrudging admiration or, or outright joy that I had done in my way. And my takeaways from that, aside from the burn of the boats, was also when, you, when you're concealing what you're really going through and you seek advice, the advice you're going to get is filtered through the lens of the person giving it to. When it's official dumb, they collectively represented the official perspective. Yeah. Official dumb is engineered and designed for the average case, the mean case, not the edge case. So when you're an edge case, you have to say to yourself, okay, I got to be careful. The advice I'm going to get is not designed for me. Society is not organized around me to have a sick mother in a roach motel with dysfunction. And number two, when you conceal the truth of what you're going through, which I had by covering it up with the clothes, the advice is not given based upon the desperation of the situation. I guarantee if Mr. Rosenthal had spent the night in my house, and we can get into this too, listening to my mother cry like in pain and me with a towel wrapped around my head, so I could hear through the filters, just in case this was the time I really needed to call the ambulance. He would be like, drop the fuck out tomorrow. You know what I mean? And I'll stop there. But that is the story of McDonald's. No, that's incredible. I mean, there's so much in there to unpack. Knowing that you're an edge case, I think we're going to have to unpack that quickly. You yeah. know, how does somebody know that they're an edge case and that they shouldn't be following normal advice? And then the fact that you just had this inner knowing that you were meant for something more to the point where you were willing to purposely fail your way out of high school so you could quickly accelerate using this GED hack your way into college to make more money and accelerate your journey. And this wasn't like, I want to be rich when I grow up. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know you, but I don't think this was, oh, I want to be rich quicker, so I got to get out in the, the society and start working. This was like, I got to find a better way to take care of my mom, and so I need to accelerate my earning journey. Am I right? Yeah, by the way, well said. And I'll be showing packaging to peace. But yeah, this wasn't about like, I want to get a fancy car. This yeah, is, yeah. it was a couple of things happening. And I wanted, in my next book, we'll, we'll deal, deal deeper into these themes. When a child is put as parentified, made up word, but but you get what it means. And you you take on the adult roles too soon. You grapple with a bunch of emotions. One, you're, you're placed on a pedestal as a hero that you can, you have within you the power to save people, even though you're 12. So that was one context. The second context was, but wait, this feels unnatural. Children know when they're being abused or treated unnaturally. It wasn't abused, but it was treated unnaturally. And they, you cry out to right the wrong. And so I had a bunch of emotions, which is like, I want to save my mother. I want to do right by her. I can't handle the guilt. I can't stand the resentment. I want to go be a kid. It's going to mess up my personality if I can't be selfish. That's part of the process, right? I would have these honest conversations with her. And so for me, this move was about saving her, but also saving the future version of myself from a life of resentment because I wanted to be a kid. And so that's the, the motivation. The greatest gift I was given was that def defiance when like, I'm of here, I'm among here, but I'm not of here, right? Like, why would this circumstance dictate my entire life? Like, there's something more inside me. I don't know where that came from. I think that was a degree of, of genetics, you know, mm -hmm. and, and my gift from the universe. And so in terms of when do you know you're an edge case, I, I talked about that intuition of lack of belonging, right? I think we all know when we are edge cases and we feel it inside ourselves. But if we're not trained or coached to listen to that intuition, we tend to submit to officialdom. We outsource our judgment. We defer. We listen to TED Talks. It's one of the big reason why I wrote the book is to advocate for the self and to model in a situation where the self, me, came up with something seemingly absurd to officialdom. But now when everyone sees the end of the story and knows the, the details of the middle, which is why I share them of what I was going through, it all makes such sense. And so I love what you asked me. I don't have a perfect answer. Like, how do you know with, that you're in the edge case other than I think you know? Yeah, right? it's an inner knowing. It's an inner knowing, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think you answered it well when you said, you just don't seem to fit in to what's normal or what's expected, especially as a kid. I didn't necessarily felt like I fit in. My wife didn't feel like she fit in. We felt like we were destined to be somewhere else doing something else. And you just know that some of the normal rules or, or beliefs don't necessarily apply to you. And I think that's how you, some of the signs that you are an edge case, you know? Yeah, let's in terms of coaching somebody, I would almost coach them and say, 
trust that you will know you're an edge case. The part that you need to know is that society is not set up for the edge case, right? Uh Like that's something we don't talk a lot about is like the rules of the society, many of them unwritten, which are the most insidious and corrosive rules, which we can get into some of those like incrementalism, right? The rules are designed not for you. And the society will attempt to make you fit in because it's efficient. It's why corporations have director of marketing, VP of marketing. If you go to be a lawyer, you're going to do, you're going to do discovery for eight years before you get to be a partner, like, cause they're efficient. So same back to high school, the system wasn't set up to respond entrepreneurially to Matt Higgins manifesting as an intelligent kid who probably could go to college early. And by the way, given the fact that you need to survive, it does make sense to get you on your way, young man. Right? Like, so I think if we coach anybody listening out there, I don't know how much you need to worry about whether you're going to know you're an edge case. What you need to know is that the world is not designed for you. So yeah. if you suspect you're an edge case, you are, and you need to know and believe that the rules around you are not designed to see you succeed. Not that they're, they're not designed to hold you back. They're designed to efficiently organize the people around you. Wow. Really well said. Before we move on, I want to talk about your mom, if you're open to it. You lost your mom when you were a young adult. You know, you were doing everything you could to take care of her. You had mentioned that she battled illness for a long time. I lost my dad three years ago, very different circumstance, but nonetheless, I know what it's like to lose a parent. But she left you with some incredible life lessons. Do you care to honor her and and share a couple of those? Yeah, no, it'd be great. I mean, again, a little more like, so where does the story go? And we t- I talk about in the opening of the book. My book is not meant to be an autobiography. I'm trying to just credentialize the credential I think that matters most is that you could meet me not as a guy on Shark Tank who's got wealth or whatever you think I have. It's to meet me as a 16-year-old trying to save his mother because that is more useful. That is my authority that I care about. So I tell the story in the book, but to truncate it, that the um, by dropping out of high school very early, it pulled everything forward very quickly. So I was on this urgent attempt to generate enough money so that I could actually leave, do right by her, but but leave and continue on a normal trajectory before it was too late and not succumb to my environment. Kids dying, lots of kids dying, lots of kids going to jail. Like So that's the context. I go from 16 years old McDonald's to by the time I'm 26, after all these incredible moves, writing in a newspaper, working for the mayor, quitting the mayor's office because I didn't like it, because I didn't get what I wanted, rejoining the mayor's office twice, I get the offer of a lifetime to be the press secretary of the mayor of New York. This is Rudy Giuliani, version 1.0, pretty crazy, full disclaimer. But uh, to be the press secretary of the mayor of New York, now I'm like, this is the worst possible timing. I'm now in law school. It took me seven years of college at night. I did went to law school, not because I was dying to be a lawyer, but because I wanted to cleanse these decisions because people would never believe I did it on purpose. I'm like, let me throw that in for good measure. But law review at Fordham Law, law school, and then taking care of my mother who's declining and we're still trying to outrun poverty. And I get offered to be press secretary of the mayor of New York, which I did not want to take, but I thought opportunity doesn't come like this all the time. And I don't get to choose my moment. I always felt that way. And so I took the job. And the day before my mother was on an oxygen tank and she's like, you know, I don't feel good. Please don't go to work. And I was like, you never feel good. And we have no money. You don't have a caregiver. I'm giving you sponge baths. I hate my life. You hate your life. I was like, tomorrow morning, I will go to work and I will make $100,000 a year. A decade ago, I made three seventy-five. dollars right? So I take that job. And then 11 o'clock that morning, my mother dies. So it's like- day, On your first day at the job. Yeah, my first day of the job, like- so, which is, it's just so crazy, right? And I share this in a story because it's important because it confirmed there was no cavalry coming. I was right. The school was wrong. Society was wrong. No one intervened. Had they intervened in that little boy's life, there's nothing inevitable about my mother's death. She was the trials of Job, heavy. And there's lots of reasons why in her childhood it carried forward, right? But it wasn't inevitable. And in fact, today with a, a Zempic and all these other ones, she wouldn't be. But anyway, she died that day the gift that you're referencing that she gave is this mindset. And it's why I'm so passionate about this book and why I chose a very bombastic in your face title that you will reflexively reject because it contradicts everything we're told as children. You need a backup plan. You need a backup plan. When I told my mother, I have an idea that I think uh, can help and we can get out of here and I'm going to drop out of high school and go to college sooner. She was like, well, that sounds like a really good idea. I was like, you you could do anything with your brain and your determination. Not an ounce of reservation. It's amazing. And so I didn't realize that at the time, you know, and one would say, well, that's pretty negligent of your mom supporting that. But so what she gave me 
is the opposite of what 90% of parents do, which is she believed in my outlandish plan. Now, she got there through faith in my intellect, but there's another way to get there, which is the following. When you tell your child, they come up with, they say they want to be the next Taylor Swift, or they want to be messy, or they want to be whatever they want to be that you think is outside their ability because they're five, five, you know, and they want to be Jordan, whatever the hell it is you think that you know better. One, your prism is to is to attempt to be protective. That's one lens by which you give that advice. Another lens by which you give that advice is the subconscious part of you that felt you never got to perceive your own dreams because your parents told you you had to be an accountant. Well, what you really wanted to do is be in a band. Now you're doing the same thing to your child. However you get there, good motive or bad, when you tell somebody they need a backup plan, what you're telling them is like, it's probably not going to work out. The problem is when you're doing really old, audacious things, you need 110% of your commitment in order to pull it off. We can get into it. And that's the point of the book. So my mother, and I didn't realize this until I started down this journey. I was like, you know, weirdly, I don't have any recollection of her rejecting any of these crazy ideas, even being press secretary in New York. You know, like going to law school at night, never rejected it, believed in my potential. Now, now on the flip side, she thought I could save her. She's yeah. probably the, the, you know, an unfortunate dynamic that we had. But at the same time, she believed I could do everything. So yeah. thank you for bringing that up. I went back two decades later to deliver the commencement address at, the, at her college, Queens College. We both went there. And it was the one place she had joy and happiness. When she died, the mayor of New York asked, is there anything I could do for you? It was the first day on the job. And I was like, you know, she was only happy there. I have no memories of childhood. It was all a disaster. But there was one time when she was happy when she was at that school. Can we drive the casket through her through the college? And, and that's wow. exactly, she had like a motorcade. My brother went to her wake and it was the craziest turnout. Now, my mother lived alone on a chair watching yeah. TV on reruns. Yeah. And he was like, Matthew, was mom a made woman? Like, <laughs> she in the fucking mafia? Who are these people? So the mayor drove her, her college. Her I go back to school two decades later. My mother was always concerned that her, she, her life would matter and everybody would forget about her. And as I'm about to walk up to the days, 10,000 kids and family on the lawn of the college that I was sat there with a little nine-year-old boy watching her graduate, right? I'm delivering the commencement address to get an honorary PhD. An uh, older gentleman walks into site, stops the line and says, excuse me, I just gotta, I gotta stop. It instantly comes back to me. Dean Savage, I recognize your face. You had the office over the pizzeria on Casino Boulevard. He's like, that's right. I said, because I just wanted to tell you I ret- I'm retiring tomorrow. But I wanted to let you know, your mother was the smartest student I ever had. I just thought wow. you should know that. I'm like, this is the great, like, and I gave the speech to inter her memory. But to have that happen, I was like, oh, your life did matter. Like, even if it's a small way, here's this person who, you know, remembered you two decades later, who has to stop. And of course, now I can't even perform when I'm about to give this commencement speech. I'm like, but anyway, I, I guess my, I don't know what the moral of that story is, but uh, pretty incredible moment. That's an incredible story. That's an incredible moment. You know, you said there was a lot of privilege that you did not come from, but you had the privilege of a, a mom that believed in you. And that sometimes is all that it takes. And, and you know, you mentioned, you said, well, maybe she was betting on me. And that's why she was showing that faith in me. And I never met you before. I never met your mom, but I have a, just a hunch or an intuition that says, no, she genuinely knew that you were different, right? Call it parents' intuition, mom's intuition. Whatever. And she wanted to do, if anything, encourage you to just go follow that because society and society's rules clearly were not working for her and for you at the time. So why not yeah. buck society and, and society's rules at that point? That's, a, that's an incredible story. That is right. I think I think right or worse, I was special and had a degree of compassion, empathy that could do something. So I don't think it was social engineering to be a hero. You know, I do think yeah. it was it was from the right place. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. We tell the story. I'm embarrassed even talking to you right now. If you were to pull up 50 podcasts, this is why I don't prep, is I've told versions of the story before. I always tell something I haven't shared. I don't believe I shared the Dean Sauer. I always get emotional at it, and then I get angry at myself. And I'm like, why grow up already? You know what I mean? Like, fucking grow up. Like, mom died. Lots of moms died. But I want to say this to anybody listening out there. If you've been through some degree of trauma, you go through a lot of therapy to try to extinguish the trauma or to try to heal, quote unquote, heal. I decided some time ago after doing some therapy that there's a place I don't want to go to of healing because I don't want to cauterize this wound because I believe within the wound, within the trauma lies my empathy. And I think the reason why a lot of people go through hardships and they respond by saying, hey, no one helped me, so suck it up. Yeah. And the reason I don't have that attitude is I think I was born into this world empathetic. 
And I felt like it was the one thing I don't want to be taken from me. And so I believe the reason it stays raw, because I'm not an idiot, I probably could find a way to tell this story in a disassociated way that I'm like, okay, let me package it up for prime time, is that I think within our trauma and our wounds resides our capacity to see our situation in others. But when you heal too much from them, they become scabbed over and you become disassociated. So long way of showing as an illustration of what I'm trying to say is I give um, scholarships to single mothers at that college. We're like my mom. And I do these calls with them. Now there are many at this point. And I feel like I've said this before, like I'm talking to like LeBron James. Like I know exactly what it would be like to have no one helping you, rotten kids who don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, a deadbeat husband and no money in the bank. And yet, instead of just cleaning houses, you're also trying to get a degree because you see that you too had a better life in store from you. You just made some shitty decisions or bad things happened to you. So Long way of saying anyone out there who has uh, unreconciled trauma, maybe you shouldn't be trying so hard to try to reconcile because something magical probably resides within it. Yeah, I agree. It can be formed into a superpower. And by the way, I'm so glad you mentioned the scholarships. You know, our tagline for our show is when good people make good money, they can do great things. And what it means is when we can help people reach their potential, then they have that much more abundance and means to make a big difference in whatever matters to them. And that's exactly what you're doing and helping people, the very same individuals who are just like your mom. And that's one of life's great rewards when you get to the point that you're yeah, to be able to do that. Let's talk about that for half a second. So I had one of the most amazing conversations of my life when I was at the Dolphins. I was vice chair of the Dolphins for a long time and oversaw the team, the business side. And Warren Buffett came because he was very close to Indomitian Sue. He was his mentor. Oh, so wow. Warren Buffett I would have never guessed came. that, by the way. Right. It's a great, by the way, crazy story too. Two about opposites. That, consider well, that made, the biggest shock of my year. Cold called him. Sue cold called him and was like, hey, Warren Buffett gets on the phone and let him tell the story in its rich detail. But the bottom line, he was like, I need a mentor. And he's like, sure. And like, so anyway, fast forward, my partner, Steve Ross is awesome. He's like, hey, uh, oh, by the way, I'm uh, I'm getting together with uh, Warren Buffett tomorrow in case you're around. You want, like, what? Come again? I was like, of course. He's like, wait, you want to meet him? I'm like, meet him. I'm like, anyway, long story short, I spent like half a day with him and we went for a walk on the stadium together. And I had been wanting to pitch him an idea and I and I brought it up. I said, I love that you have the giving pledge. That's awesome. But I think there's something bizarre about aspiring to be a billionaire to qualify for your giving pledge. But also I want to impact people while I'm here. How do you reconcile that? And I have an idea. And his answer to me was, you know, it's one of the things I took a lot of criticism for throughout my life. My theory, though, was that the money in my hands would enable me to compound it greater than if I gave it away all now. So I deferred and now I have what I have. But was that the right choice? It's something I you know, grapple with. So I said, I would love to create the living pledge instead of the giving pledge where we replicate, you know, tithing. Is that the word? Uh, we yeah. give away 10% of your income every year so we can combine what you're saying, which is compounding, which is correct but yet still feel the joy of doing it in your lifetime. But isn't that an amazing conversation? It's incredible. incredible. Does it exist? Does the living pledge exist? Does not. It is on my list. And now that I'm saying it out loud, (laughs) you know, like I got to go do it. But that was my thought. Like how fun would it be to take Warren Buffett's compound, which I do agree with, by the way, anyone out there listen, fine, you're an entrepreneur, right? I guarantee that money in my possession versus money at a non-for-profit Ultimately, I will do more good, but I might die tomorrow. (laughs) So I want to have the joy and the meaningfulness of doing some stuff now. So I thought that would be a very formulaic way. Replicate tithing, which happens in a religious context, but do it in a broader context and through a vessel that you, you know, respect. So, and then somebody like you and I could sign the living pledge. Yep. Because you can't sign unless you're a billionaire. Yeah. That would (laughs) be incredible. That, okay, if you do that, I want to know. I want to be, I want to be first in if you do that. That'd be incredible. No, I think the reason, aside from you're an awesome human being, is fun to meet. Maybe that's why the universe has us on this podcast. So I do something. That's awesome. That's all. Yeah, the universe is right in our script right now. Love it. So let's take this a, a different direction real quick. You're an investor in, in early startups. You have a massive fund, from what I understand, and, and you really aim for early startups. Is that correct? Like pre-revenue? Actually, I, like I do both. I have an incredible vehicle with my partner, Jesse Darris, where we do direct-to-consumer businesses. I have over 100 of them, and I teach the subject at Harvard Business School. But I also companies outright. And that's actually probably the thing I enjoy more is like kneading the dough. But, you know, so we play, we run the gamut because it's a partnership between two people. I don't need a tidy narrative. I do everything. So the reason I bring this up is 
A lot of times when you're raising capital, you get so many no's. And you tell the story about Stuart. I forget what Stuart's company was, but 175 pitches, 175 no's. And he finally went back to an investor and got one. You tell him so many good stories about like perseverance and fighting through. But one of the things that you talk about in the book that stood out to me was following instincts over data. And the rub that I wanted to ask you about is when you're pitching an investor, typically the investor cares about data, 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 and what is the likelihood of this thing you know, being a, a real case scenario, but you, the entrepreneur, especially if you're an edge case, you know, your instincts might be more valuable than the data that you're able to gather. Talk to me a little bit about following instincts over data, especially in a, a fundraising atmosphere. So interesting what you're saying, by the way, because I'm now toggling my brain between who is that advice for more. Yeah. So point about the best decisions are the intuitive decisions are almost actually for the investor. Wow. So that you that you don't get too focused on the data, actually. And that advice from an entrepreneur standpoint of the best decisions are the intuitive intuitive decisions is more about a warning that don't dismiss your ideas just because you don't have enough evidence to support it. So let's break that down. Let's talk about it from an entrepreneur perspective, right? I talk in the book about this idea of gut sandwich, that the best decisions in life at the end of the day are gut sandwich. They begin with an intuition about how the world should be done differently, an epiphany, what I call proprietary insights often. It's a glimmer of how things could be done differently that I was able to garner from the context of my life, my experience, my job. Proprietary insight of a way the world could be done differently that could be a new business, right? Now, people can go in two different directions once we have that proprietary insight. We do what everyone do. We call our buddy Bob, you know, or our wife or whomever to say, like, I got this idea. Now, it's important to have a framework for how to handle their feedback, right? And I talk about how the magnitude of an opportunity has an inverse relationship to the amount of evidence there is to support it. Obviously, you had an epiphany at three in the morning, it doesn't exist. So Bob might be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I always use Airbnb as a perfect example. Brian Chesky, guy sleeps on a futon in 2009 or whatever. And he's like, I think people would love to rent their living room couch. And it's like, I, you, maybe you're different. I would have said, you're out of your mind. People are going to steal my shit. Right. So, but for whatever reason, Brian Chesky and his colleagues knew that there was something called the sharing economy that we would all weirdly accept one day, right? That's his proprietary, you know, insight. So my advice to entrepreneurs getting to launch a business is to understand that why are you seeking evidence and validation when this is actually an incredible opportunity, right? And I always say, Mm -hmm. we need to retrain our minds to act on opportunity before the tipping point of evidence, to act in the interstitial space between the two. So from an investor standpoint, what do I mean Like about trusting instincts? It's like when I, I'm dealing with some crappy situations right now, like every investor is about to be dealing with and even more so in the next six months as the whole world goes to hell. Yeah. And when I look back, why am I here? Like, why have I found myself? And now I can bullshit and say, oh, there were intervening events. There was COVID, there was a recession. The reality is it was all obvious from the day I wrote the check and I had a suspicion that it would end this way. And I chose to ignore that, rationalize my way out of it. Whereas we should be confronting those intuitions, those suspicions, because the data at the end of the day is never going to give you the green light. It's just going to confirm or, you know, solidify your existing view. And so that's why I talk about it so much. And the reason why diligence from an investor standpoint is not have a higher weight towards psychology, intuition, whatever. It's hard to reduce that to writing. It's hard to scale it. It's hard to talk about these. How do you quantify it, right? Right. And I've tried to do it in the book a little bit about common fact patterns, but I'll give you an easy one from an investor standpoint. If I'm talking to an entrepreneur and I detect that they're over-indexing for self-awareness, they're using I more than we, they're not picking up my verbal cues, like I'm getting bored of your story <laughs> or whatever. No, you sound like a fucking narcissist, right? Like, why does that matter? Those aren't just like social idiosyncrasies. It matters because a business five years after it was launched has very little resemblance to the PowerPoint deck. It is the byproduct of endless iterations and pivot moments that were executed well, right? So if I have a founder who's demonstrating lack of EQ, and lack of self-awareness, some maybe narcissistic qualities, they are much less likely to make the pivots and iterate because to pivot is to acknowledge that I won not on the right course and to acknowledge it publicly. And if you're not self-aware or you're like self-preoccupied with reputation, you won't make those course corrections. That is 100 times more important than TAM. It is like 100 times more important than traction. And yet we don't talk about it as investors. It's fascinating because 
when I hear you talk about this, my wife and I invest in five startups each year, like clockwork, like that's our goals as part of our portfolio. So as an investor, I understand what you're saying. When I read it in the book, I was receiving it as the entrepreneur saying, hey, yeah, if I get rejection, if people tell me, because I'll be honest, I'm fundraising and I got off a call about four days ago and fundraising has been going fantastic, like great feedback and getting a lot of, of good investors. We're looking for strategic angels. And all of a sudden I came across one person who I really respect and, and respect their knowledge or accomplishments and hold on a pedestal. And we spent 90 minutes with him giving me every piece of data and every reason it's not going to work. And I left that call really defeated. And then when a couple of days later, when I reached that point in your book where it was talking about intuition over data, it kicked me right back in the game. Like this is one of these intuition over data moments. And that call is going to be the anomaly. And I can't wait to, to go show, you know what I mean? That kind of a thing. No, I love that. But what's fun about never prepping, <laughs> like I've never talked about what you, you just said. And it was an epiphany when you mentioned that you, you received it from the version of an entrepreneur. That is how it's written in the book. Because my book is to aid the entrepreneur and the yeah. angst and the anxiety. Like that is what it's for. It's just like spontaneously. It's like, oh, by the way, here's another framework that shows up in the investment standpoint. Back to you, the purpose of it in the book and emphasizing intuition and particularly gut sandwich, because so many great, great ideas go to die at the moment of substantiation and validation, like you with the investor being like, nah, or you, you know, with your unsupportive, you know, you have a great spouse, you're lucky. I do too. But you with your partner rolls their eyes like you and the ideas, Ralph Cramden, always coming up with something else, you know what I mean? And then you're like, yep. fuck. You know, yep, so, yep. so in the book, for those who haven't read it yet, I tell the story of Lola, which is such mm -hmm. a fun story. Lola is a feminine care products, right? Mm -hmm. Two female co-founders. And they were sure that if women were to read the ingredients of their feminine care products, including bleach, they might think twice about what they're putting in their body. Interestingly, the feedback they got, now I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for them. So this might be, they, they might say something totally opposite, but I remember a lot of women that they consulted actually thought it wouldn't work, that mm -hmm. there was too much loyalty to existing brands. Now, men who didn't have a preconceived notion were like, sure makes sense to me. Uh -huh. I wrote one of the first checks into Lola. I could be wrong, and I'm remembering wrong, but I like that idea generally. But in the book, I talk about regardless, collectively, there wasn't data to support that if people were to receive this new piece of information that's not being amplified, which is, by the way, you should read the ingredients, there's a better way they would respond to that better way. But there was no evidence. Now, it would have been easy for them to look at the data and say, this is a monopolistic category that's dominated by three major players. It's not going to get retail distribution. Women are too loyal to their existing brand. It's never going to work. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, I just wanted to advocate for you, by the way, as you're going through this process, for the inner intuition, it's like, no, I know it when I introduce this new data, this new product, new packaging, new branding, it's going to work. I saw this guy for anybody. Go, there's this commercial. There's this ads on Twitter right now. I'm a first investor in Hims. We okay. did really well yep. in Hims. Rectile dysfunction, blue pills, right? Viagra, yep. generic version. And I had never seen these. Uh, I never heard of this thing called like blue chew. I came across this ad on Twitter and the ad was so damn good and like so funny. I was like, oh, they're going to work. They've basically taken, I forgot the generic name of Viagra, but they've uh, taken Viagra and it, yeah. Send a Cenafil or something like that. They've put it in the form of um of a gum. And instead of a pill, it's now a gum. That seems to be the only innovation plus great marketing. And now, if I was imagining them trying to launch this company and talking to some investor, literally, my mind was wandering. And I sent them a DM, like, love your crazy ads. I can imagine an investor like me being like, there's already hymns and row, and everyone's run the play. And them trying to articulate, no, but we're gonna run these really cool, crazy ads. And the found factor of having it in the form of gum plus our cool marketing is going to open up a whole new demo to it. And an investor being like, nah, and just my quick, you know, you can hold me to it. It looks like it's going to work. So That's incredible. You know what? I'm noticing a trend. If you can take taboo products that people don't enjoy talking about sometimes or very unsexy products and create a great, you know, different delivery system and a great fun story and fun advertising around it. That in itself is just a great small iteration on an already rising tide that works. 
100% agree, which is why back to, I try to articulate, I love writing a book, by the way. Remember, I don't know if any of you took sociology in a college or, mm-hmm. and I was like, what are these made up words that, that you give to these like things and you'd make it sound like pseudoscience. So I, when I wrote a book, I was like, I get to make up words and create <laughs> pseudoscience. So one of my pseudoscience uh, terms is proprietary insight to describe this point, right? That you're making of like, like a slight trajectory change. And so there's a guy, his name is Brian. He's a founder of a company called Starface that I uh, I wrote the uh, first in jack- check into with my partner Jesse Darris. We own a good part of the company. His whole company is predicated on that idea. So wow. Starface is an acne product to basically destigmatize the act of trying to cover up your acne and deal with it by making it little stars. Right? Massive company now, worth hundreds of millions. He's like he saw the Plan B. You know the product yep. Plan B. There's yep. only like two female contraceptive products out there. It's only like a $500 million TAM when it yeah. should be a billion dollar TAM because it's a taboo topic. And he was like, I'm going to create a third brand called Julie. We just launched again. I'm an investor in that too. And it is a rocket ship because he's like, well, I'm going to make this a non-taboo topic and create an accessible brand. So for anyone out there, this is now the hard part is like back to your point about from an entrepreneur standpoint, to pull off a slight iteration of an existing product in a crowded market by virtue of branding and all these other things, you really have to have tenacity because mm-hmm. dumb investors are going to be like, well, the TAM is already crowded. That incumbent, we like to use bullshit words that make you intimidate. The incumbent already has 87% of the market. Uh, you know, I don't see how it works. But you know, if I just change the marketing or branding, this is a massive business. Those really require the gut sandwich, right? Yep. The, that I talk about. Yep. That blind faith that sometimes I feel like you got to be crazy inside to be able to pull off what we pull off as entrepreneurs. It's amazing. Not, not only that, like, I think a lot of investors, it's like a natural impulse because you're trying to scale something that's not totally scalable, which is yep. identify the magic early and make a 10X or 100X on it, right? Yep. So they, while they want confidence and conviction, they get intimidated by frenetic behavior because you presume, oh, the person's all over the place. They won't be disciplined enough. Mm-hmm. And I've seen many fact patterns where I don't have it in me to pursue 19 versions of this idea. And that, that entrepreneur ends up being a winner. You know, yep. so like really need a lot of conviction to get like you're going through right now that one person, 90 minutes. You're like, oh, man, maybe. Like, right. Damn. And then you read the book again. You're like, all right, that's right. All these the other kicked me right back in the game. That's hey, there's the endorsement for the book. Kick me right back in the game. It's funny. So Lori and I were listening to the book a couple of mornings ago on, on our walk. And we got to the part where, you know, you had said, hey, you didn't graduate high school. And then we, you know, obviously the titles burn the boats. And Lori and I were, were kind of really like spinning everything into a joke. And she hit pause and, you know, we had an earbud in each ear and she hit pause and she's like, okay, I know what my next tattoo is. I said, what's that? She goes, my high school diploma and I light it on fire and I'm burning boats with it. And I'm like, yeah, so let's get it all the way across your back, babe. It's going to be really hot. But it's, it's funny because you have to have that stance and have that little bit of craziness to burn the boats and make entrepreneurship a success. You touched earlier on who you wrote this book for, the people that... Mm-hmm. You want them to see you in the beginning of your journey, that you didn't come from all sorts of advantage, not the guy who's on Shark Tank, not the guy with all the accomplishments, but the person who had a lot of headwinds. That's who you want to reach. But I don't want to put those words in your mouth. Who is this book for? Who should be hitting pause right now and going and downloading the book? I mean, the book is a little bit of an inside joke in my mind, right? Like you couldn't have a more you know bombastic jingoistic title it looks like a pagan symbol on fire right like it's it's actually the opposite of what the book delivers now that you're listening to it right because your perception when you read it is like oh it's going to be simplistic like you just need to say screw everybody screw yourself you know whatever right and actually that little symbol right there is a reconstructed paper boat in a child's bathtub that we did multiple multiple the graphic was built from from nothing because that's the boat I needed to burn was a lot of the legacy issues that I had as a kid, including shame and the kind of conversation. I didn't always have these types of conversations. And so, so who did I wrote the book, the book for? I think there's a vast segment of the population that self-selects out of ambition yeah. because they've been led to believe that they are risk. I'm not a risk taker. And, but the reality is everybody is a risk wanter. There's very few percent of people doesn't want risk, but they believe I'm, a, I'm not a risk taker. I wrote the book for that percentage of the population. And my little inside joke is like, I'm going to appropriate this term that is often used in a simplistic, sometimes callous way. And I'm going to appropriate for us, for the people who it doesn't come naturally to, who, you know what I mean, are not self-possessed or narcissistic or sociopathic, like whatever the, whatever the continuum, it's for the people who have a metaphorical boat that they need to burn 
in order to effortlessly submit to their plan A. And I'm going to build a case using history, science, psychology, and case studies to you that the mere contemplation of plan A, plan B rather, is enough to undermine your plan A because I'm 100% positive. But the reason why we don't embrace this logic is because you reflexively think, well, that's, that's reckless. Mm-hmm. And as you read the book, you'll say, oh, I'm not at all advocating that you don't contemplate the risk. I always say I'm the most, I'm the most neurotic risk taker, you know, paranoid risk taker. Uh, what I'm saying is I use, and I'm putting a video out on this today, I use my own risk matrix that I attack risk at the beginning of the journey so that I can mitigate future Matt looking over my shoulder being like, ah, oh, what if though, what if this doesn't work out, right? Like, and I'm I'm convinced that the everybody has ambition. We haven't been nurtured to believe there's a way to reconcile both the things that are holding you back by burning them, but also by the things that that weigh you down by managing them, i.e. in the chapter on anxiety, so that you can stop self-selecting out of ambition, stop yeah. saying you're not a risk taker, and say you're a risk manager. Yep. You know, all the, I just came up with that. I like that idea. So, so that we all can become risk managers. So I wrote the book for anybody who's got who suspects that they have more inside of them, but they can't cross the threshold because they have those legacy issues or maybe a spouse, which you, again, you don't have. I love talking about this. Like you have somebody in your foxhole, like every nation on earth will tell you, you can't win a two front war that is holding you back. This book is meant to hold up a mirror to you and confirm you're right. And I absolutely love that. There's a lot of people out there and, and, and you phrase it better than I will, but they know they need to take the risk, but they just have not swallowed that pill yet of really crossing over and, and taking that calculated risk. You had a, a quote in the book. It was, opportunity is not an exhaustible resource. When you see yours, you have to grab it or harness it. I know I'm butchering that. I mean, you're right. But, it's not, opportunity is not an inexhaustible resource, right? So yeah, have, not, that spoke not? to me. Yeah, and, I, and I, I put that in. I used the story I told you about becoming press secretary on that day as the, one of those moments, like if I don't make that choice, see my entire life changes, but man, that was the wrong time for that, right? Like horrendous, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe my mother was passing the baton, you know? But anyway, for all of us, I have never seen it work out when yeah. someone defers an opportunity, believing they could sequence their life and pursue it later. It never works out. Ask Chris Christie as he runs for president when he was the darling, or as, you know, in every context when somebody defers, because- Number one, when it pertains to an idea, we all of our ideas are the result of amalgam of experience and data that precedes the moment you had the idea. We're not tabula rasas, right? Where it's like, I suddenly came up with Uber. You know, you came up with Uber because you had a shitty experience calling a livery car. Okay, well, one million other people had that experience too. And they're thinking, wouldn't it be great if there was an app? So what I'm trying to say to everybody is like, the reason why opportunity is not an inexhaustible resource is because at the exact moment you had that epiphany, somebody else did too. And at the same time, opportunities are the result of a lot of factors that convene at one moment, they conspire on your behalf, and then they retrace, they disappear. And now on the flip side, arguing against what I'm saying, it's an important part. So the, a lot of reasons why I find people sitting in a business that they didn't want to build or like drowning in bad facts years after they started something is because they had an epiphany at three in the morning. They woke up, they were so excited to pursue it that they didn't pressure test it because they were afraid of being rejected because they're fleeing something rather than running towards something. The fleeing clouds their judgment of like, wait, wait, well, this is a nice idea. It's it's actually a feature of a business, not a business. I've done this in my lowest moments, right? Where I launched something, I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? So while I want to say opportunity is not an inexhaustible resource, that specific opportunity. But you, if you're brilliant enough to have an epiphany, probably have a better one around the corners. So it's not arguing, don't pressure test it. It's have the confidence that if, after you weigh it, you decide it's not really an opportunity after all. You know what I mean? You have to first decide if it's truly an opportunity. And I think most people are afraid to do that. And they find themselves in situations because they're fleeing rather than embracing. And then they regret it a few years later. Well, I just want you to know that that quote in this book has really spoke to both Lori and I. You know, she, we simultaneously have startups and, and that is the opposite of smoothly planning a timeline. You know, ideally we both had thriving personal brands and, and great things going on, but we both had to seize that opportunity because we know that it's a, a resource that is, is fleeting and you got to take it when you, when you have it. And that just really spoke to us. And that's why people need to go out and get this book. If you have anything that you want to build, or if you are building something, or if you just have that hunch that you're an edge case and you are meant 
to do something different than what society is trying to, to force you to do, go grab this book, burn the boats. It'll empower you. It'll give you confidence. It'll make you feel bulletproof. Like it kicked me back in the game after a bad call. And uh, this book will probably be one of the ones that you look back on and, and tell people this was the turning point. This changed your life. So Matt, we once in a while on the show, we do something that when we really believe in a book, when we really love it. You know, we want to get in as many hands as possible. So I'm going to do something fun with you today. To everyone who's listening to this episode, for the first 50 people that tag you and me on Instagram with their takeaway, not just tag us that they listen, but with their takeaway, like, hey, here's what I learned. Here's what shifted for me. I will personally buy and send them a book from Amazon so that they can have Burn the Boats in their hands. And that's just something fun that we like to do to try and get, you know, these books in, into people's hands. But even if you're not one of the first 50 that tag us and, you know, with your what your takeaways, make sure you go out there, get Burn the Boats. Where's the best place for them to get it, Matt? First of all, thank you for your nice comments, by the way. This is like, it really is the most important work that I've ever done. People keep saying, what's your next goal? I was like, I don't think I have a goal. What could be better than changing the trajectory of somebody's life? It's not that I'm Mother Teresa. It's just like objectively true, right? Like another deal, another thing. So thank you. And uh, Amazon is probably the easiest place, you know? Annoying part about being an author is you track that damn ranking all the time. Uh, (laughs) But I think Amazon would great. Most important to me though, for anybody who reads the book or has read the book, DM me with your reactions. I read every single one of them. I love hearing the story. Every week I have a newsletter. I I, uh, profile a boat burner, somebody who made a change. Oh, no way. Yeah, every week. I just, I mean, again, every day I wake up and feeling slightly fatigued by the marketing effort because it's not in my DNA to be so promotional. But then I get the message like, hey, Matt, from all sorts of different demographics, which again, in this society, which we've become so balkanized, right? I now as a white male with money, I'm no longer supposed to be able to reach somebody from a different demographic. And I tried to write this book in a way that I suspect a back to gut sandwich. If I wrote it in the right way, I'd be able to meet you somewhere. And when I get messages from somebody from all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds saying, you changed my life. I have a woman who's so amazing. She says, 60-year-old black woman grandma. And like, we go back and forth all the time. And yeah. it's like the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, like, yeah. like think about life. It's also silly, like material possessions and credentials. I have enough. So the ability to reach people. So bottom line is if you read the book and it touches you, but you don't understand something and you want to ask me a question, DM me on any platform and I will respond. I will not save your life and I will not do the work for you. But if you want to tell me what you're going through and want a question, I will do that. Because you know, one of the, the things that we will finish on this, that when you're an entrepreneur, you have to cross over. I get this message a lot. I got a great idea for electric vehicle gas stations where it's like a mall and people yeah. are going to have to stop there for 30 minutes. And I think, and they're like, cool. So you want to do it? Or they have a patent and you want to sell me your patent. I'm like, patents are bullshit. Do the work. So a little bit of tough love. You do have to do the work. If you need a little guidance intellectually about how to do it, DM me because I'd love to hear about it. So I just, I don't want to be totally Pollyannish. Like everybody could do it. The majority of those self-select out of the work and don't want to I love that. That's such a kind offer to, you know, to make sure you're getting your DMs and and giving everybody, even if it's the direct advice that they don't want to hear, but they need to hear, you know, hey, get to work. Good. If you believe in this, roll up your sleeves, get a little dirty. I love that you're willing to do that. Burn the boats on Amazon. Hey, where can they opt into your newsletter? On Twitter, I have the link to my Substack. That's probably, it's on Substack, Burn the Boats, but, um, or it's on my bio and LinkedIn as well. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So either of those places. All right, perfect. And then, uh, like I said, make sure you tag at Matt Higgins. You're at Matt Higgins on Instagram, right? I am indeed. And then uh, why don't we also, on top of that, why don't we choose, you know, random winner to send out an autographed personalized copy to? That would be fun. I don't know. That would be super cool. All right. So tag at Matt Higgins and and myself with your takeaway uh, so everybody else can see your takeaway. And the first 50 you do that, I'll buy you a book. And sounds like one out of the 50 are going to get a personalized signed copy, which is super cool from Matt. Last thing, anybody out there listening who uh, has a library that they love and you can't afford the book or you love your library, DM me the library information and I'll send them, I'll send them a book. I love doing that. That's cool. I've never heard of all the authors I've had on. I've never heard somebody do that. That's super cool. I have a lot of books in the house for this purpose because I, <laughs> I, I remember as a little kid, I would go to library. So like, why am I not going to have my book in, the, in libraries? And there's no library program. So I just randomly sending them to libraries when somebody has a library they love. Oh, that's uh, really cool. A couple of instances, somebody has tagged me. It's been so amazing saying, hey, I didn't have the money, but it was in my library and I read the book and this is what it did. It's like, what's the value of that, right? Like, that's insane. Like out of any investment I could write, like I sent a book to a random library and this person read the book and they're acting 
like that's like millions yeah. of dollars value, right? So anyway, so anybody has a library they love, DM me and I'll, my poor wife has to, has to have this operation in the, in the, in the house. My whole, we gave up our dining room to do this, but. <laughs> I remember those from when Lori did her book. Listen, you're, you're just a great human being. I want you to know that. I, I know you already know that, but you're making a massive difference. And, and the fact that you're willing to take an hour and your busy schedule and jump on the show like this and, and just share who you are from the core, no prepared pre-contact, nothing. You're one hell of a human being. And, and I just want to say thank you. Now I want to disclaim that. I always say, I asked her the shit out of my book. Last thing, I wrote my book so I'd read my book because the advice is hard to implement. So I commiserate with anybody out there. I am not lecturing you from the mouth. I'm commiserating you about the pain and anguish of it all. And I go back and I have to read my book and I, you are my accountability partner, you know, oh. my fellow readers, because it's not easy. And sometimes we act when we get to a certain place, it's easy. And I think that's a disservice. So yeah. a lot of the raw details about imposter syndrome, Shark Tank are there to commiserate with you, not to lecture you. I love that. I love that. Thanks for being on, Matt. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.